Parham is taking kids fifth grade and under out the door to my left. I don't know if we if you have if you have need of a nursery. That's also out the door to our left. And I think we have a do we have a nurse? And Beth is going to be um, taking kids to the nursery if that is necessary or desired. The rest of you, while all of them are heading that direction, um, we're going to be in the, continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 23 uh, through 27. So you'll want to be turning there, and while you're turning to the Gospel of Luke, just a, just a quick reminder, a diversion. So uh, Saturday, on the, I think it's the 16th, is our, is our church retreat or our church camp out. Uh, as Megan mentioned, if you can't be there on, uh, for the whole thing, come on Saturday. You know, we're going to go kayaking, hiking, doing whatever, and eating. Really? How good is that, right? So, that's a, a, so we would love to, to see you there. Of course, if you want to spend the whole time camping and, and enjoying that, that's great. Um, you can do that. But even if, you, if that's not your thing, certainly hanging out with a, with a bunch of good friends, having some good food is, uh, is something we can all get on board with. So, so as we prepare for our, our message today, I just... Um, I was reading an article, and it's kind of a, a strange article, and that is in, in 1788, rabbits were introduced to Australia. So, kind of going, well, that's nice. Do we need to know that? But here's the thing about rabbits being introduced to uh, Australia. They eventually completely took over. And in fact, at one time, this foreign, um, uh, non-native part part of, uh, of Australia became a part of daily life. So rabbits really changed just about everything in Australia. They changed the way farmers farmed. They changed the way they, they did crops. It, it affected the, both the, the, the biological aspect of, of Australia. Um, erosion began to change because they ate some of the native grasses and uh, some of the uh, they competed for the same food as some of the native animals, and so those decreased, and they became pests. And so at one time, this foreign, this foreign um, organism, this thing that was not part of one's daily life, uh, soon came to be considered normal. And so this non-native species took over the natural environment, altering it forever. And you may be wondering, what in the world does rabbits in Australia have anything to do with the Gospel of Luke? And there is a lot of what I would say non-native teaching that has entered the church to such a degree that now we consider it normal. I'll give you a couple of examples. I think back in, it might have been back in the 50s, Robert Schuller wrote a book. And Robert Schuller wrote his book, and here's one of the things he stated, that theology needs to become less God-focused and more man-focused. Robert Schuller and his disciples are huge. I'm sure, I think, 
Schuler has passed away. We pray the Lord has had mercy upon him. But his disciples are, are very popular in our day and age. Let me give you another um, interesting example, and this is from a man I, I have a little bit more res- have some respect for, and that's James Dobson. And James Dobson wrote a book um, dealing with uh, a number of issues, but he really elevated the whole idea of self-esteem, and that the problem in society is that we have low self-esteem. I'm not here to debate that. I'm just wondering, do we see that in Scripture? And I have some high regard for Dr. Dobson. I think he's done, done some great work, and I don't necessarily dispute the things he's saying. I just think that that got taken. And we now live in a culture where, and even within the church, where self-esteem is a priority. And so, when we come to Scripture... We have this command of Jesus, and one of the, 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 very, uh, the very heart of this church is that of being disciples. And the very beginning of being a disciple is Jesus saying, follow me. So as we look at this, we see that Jesus had a very, very simple command for his people. Follow me. Make disciples. When I say it's simple, I don't mean simplistic. I do mean it's uncomplicated. We don't need to wonder, gee, I wonder what Jesus is all about. I wonder what God wants us to do with our lives. I wonder what Jesus has for our church. I can tell you it's very simple. I'm not saying it's simplistic. I'm not saying it's easy to do. I'm just saying it's a one-item list. Make disciples. In the very beginning of making a disciple, he says, follow me. Follow me. So as we prepare ourselves for this passage of text, let me just give you a little bit of context where I hope to go uh, with where we're at, or at least give you some context where we've been. You'll recall we just got through with Peter's great confession. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered correctly. You are the Christ of God. And last week we talked about a little bit about what that meant. And one of the issues was that, yes, you are technically correct in understanding that indeed I am the Christ of God. What they didn't understand was the purpose of the Christ of God. And Jesus said, but the Son of Man will need to suffer and be rejected and killed and raised on the third day. The disciples did not see that coming. The disciples saw the Christ of God as being a victorious, overcoming, political, social king who would restore Israel to its former glory. So when Peter says, you are the Christ of God, he has visions of dominion and Jesus corrects him and says, no, the victory is certainly the end goal, but first comes the cross. Jesus' path of glorification then runs through the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer very um, famously has said that when Jesus, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I think that's going to be very, very important for us as we go through this. So let me give you a little bit of a preview as we 
look at where we're going to go today. Our preview is we need to talk about what is a disciple. Because Jesus has just said, here's the path I'm going. Let me give you a clue as a disciple. A disciple is one who follows Christ. So where is Christ going? Well, we'll answer that question. But one of the things about a disciple is that a disciple um, follows Christ and is united with Christ. Let me read a real quick passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. I think this helps us understand um, who we are as followers of Christ. Romans 6, chapter 3 through 5, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In theological circles, we call this the um, being in union with Christ. That is what, the way I explain that is what happens to Christ happens to us. Now, we like to talk about the resurrection and the glory and all of those things that, uh, that are certainly ours because they are Christ's. But let's not forget that the path to glory runs through Calvary. And so it is with the disciple. Are we going to follow him? So that's a quick preview of what we're going to, where we're going to go, what it is to be a disciple. And let me give you just briefly our need, why we need this passage of text. We need this passage of text because we live in a self, self-indulgent world where the As a matter of fact, the world does revolve around me. And for this, I'm not talking about the unbelieving world outside. I'm talking about the self-indulgent within the people of God. And so, if you uh, have not been with us for a while, or this is your first time here, I was thinking I should apologize, but I'm not going to apologize for sharing God's word. Um, This is a, but it's a challenging passage. It's a challenging passage text for me. I assume it's going to be challenging for others because it is, it is a call, as Bonhoeffer said, it's a bid to die. It's a call to die. And this is what Jesus is calling his people to do. So let's go ahead and I'm going to read our text today. And then we'll look at it a little bit more closely. So Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. This is God's holy, inerrant word. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Our Father, we come before you this morning and I ask, Lord God, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our ears. And Lord, this is the day of, uh, of Pentecost. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes
and open our ears to hear your words as they did on that, on that first Pentecost that we celebrate. Oh, Father God, fill us with your spirit that we might see the glorious beauty of your truth. Have mercy upon us, Lord God, and grant us favor. Amen. Well, Jesus begins and he said to all, I'll pause there for just a moment. He said to all, now we know from last week that this was pretty much just the disciples. The crowds were absent. But he said to all, all disciples, all of his disciples, I want you to know that being a disciple is not reserved for the elite church people. It is not reserved for the pastor and the elders and, you know, I don't know, maybe one or two others. Or the really serious believers. Those who are really, really, you know, Jesus freaks and Bible thumpers. Being a disciple is being a follower of Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, this is for us all. He said to them all, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow after me. I want you to note there are three imperatives in this particular passage of text. There are three commands by Jesus of, I guess, what we might call marks of a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? If I say I'm a disciple of Christ, I'm a follower of Christ, what exactly are we talking about? Well, I'm glad that Jesus was very clear and he gives us at least three imperatives. In this text, he gives us three imperatives of what it means. And the first imperative is this. If anyone would come after me, if you're going to follow him, here's the first imperative. He must deny himself. He must deny himself. I guess this is a non-negotiable. This then would be the rejection of a life based upon self-interest. John Calvin said it, that this idea of self-denial, it is the sum of the Christian life. Well, we don't hear that too often. What if you were to sum up the Christian life in just a couple of words? Well, we might not choose let him deny himself. But here it is. Anyone, anyone who's going to come after me must deny himself. And let me begin the, here, that this idea of self-denial begins at the moment of salvation. If you are a follower of Christ, your salvation, your life of salvation began with self-denial. Because here's the thing. The very heart of salvation is that you and I cannot save ourselves. And so therefore, we must utterly and completely deny our self-sufficiency in salvation. We must go to the Lord and say, I've got nothing. You brought me to an end of myself and I got nothing. I got no good works. I got no merit in myself. I have no talent. I have no beauty. I have nothing of which merits your gracious salvation upon me. And so I fall at your feet, I fall at the cross, and I cry out, Lord, I am meritless, I am destitute, I got nothing. 
I am poor, wretched, miserable, and blind. Would you have mercy upon somebody like me? And so we begin our life of salvation with the utter denunciation of our own abilities. We had a family friend. um, His name was Phil. And Phil was very, very good to our family. Um, God providentially brought Phil into the life of my mother and father at a very important time. Uh, We would have been way worse off had Phil not... My dad had known Phil for a long time, but Phil kind of became active. Now, Phil was... He helped our family. He was not necessarily philanthropic. He was doing some things. He was, he, was, he was receiving some benefit out of the help that he received, but his help was immeasurable for my family. And I'm grateful for Phil. Phil. Phil's passed away since um, those days, which was quite some time ago. But I remember in passing one time, Phil was, was saying something to the effect that, you know, by, by doing this, by, by extending some of these niceties and kindness, I pray that it would earn some favor with God. Well, I believe that God does have favor on those who, have, who show kindness and generosity, but it is not a kindness, it is not a favor that would merit any kind of salvation. It, I am grateful beyond compare to Phil, but it did not earn him any points with God as far as salvation is concerned. And unless he repented of his sins and called upon the name of the Lord, he died in his sins. We cannot come to the Lord and say, here are my, here's my generosity and here's how I have helped the oppressed and here's how I have fed the poor and now please Because of these things, how about we trade these for salvation? Paul says that's that's just a wage earned. That we do good things and then we go to God and say, okay, well, I did these good things. You're in debt to me now. You owe me salvation. Let me tell you, God is in debt to no man. So the very first aspect of of denying ourselves begins at the moment that we call upon the name of the Lord. But it continues. When we walk in salvation, because you will, because this is something then that happens on a regular. But we must, we live in an aspect of self-denial. I read a story about prior to the Civil War, uh, a man in Virginia who owned numerous slaves, and one of them um, managed to escape. He had been beaten badly, um, repeatedly, and he had managed to escape and got to the north. And uh, he ended up giving his life, the, 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 the escaped slave gave his life to the Lord and became a minister of the gospel. And then after the Civil War um, and after the passage of the 13th Amendment, this slave owner um, became a follower of Christ. And he could no longer justify slavery with his faith in the Lord. But he also, and so... One of the things that he needed to do, though, was he needed to make things right with this one escaped slave. And he'd heard that he'd become a Christian and was a minister, and so he wrote him a letter. And he said, would you come and visit me? Um, 
says, my health does not permit me to come to you any longer. Um, I am sickly, but I need face to face to repent of my misdeeds towards you. And this former slave, now minister, really wrestled with it. Like going, I hate this man. This man did me great harm. I despise this man. He has hurt me. But he came. And on the, the former slave owner, this former slave owner is on his bed and he begins to share with his former slave saying, you know, I, I abused you and I am so sorry. And I've repented of the Lord and I need to ask your forgiveness. To which this former slave said, no, sir, I need to ask your forgiveness. You see, because I have hated you and I've despised you and I did not want to come. And, and I guess in the, the recorded copy of this, uh, of this uh, encounter, they actually kind of started to get in a little bit of a heated argument over who was worse. No, no, no. I need to repent more. No, no, no. I need to repent more. But here's the thing. Both of these men needed to deny themselves. One man needed to deny his pride and his arrogance and he needed to, to say that I need to humble myself before this man to whom I once lorded over and oppressed and abused and the other man needed to die to himself and say, I can no longer hold out animosity towards this man who is a brother in the Lord. Both men died to themselves that day. If you're going to be my follower, you must deny yourself. Denying ourselves begins at salvation, but it is a daily thing. We need to humble ourselves and we have no reason. We have no... There is no way that we cannot come hold grudges against one another. Refuse one another's kindness. Forgiveness. We must forgive and forgiveness requires self-denial. Let me give you perhaps the greatest example of self-denial. Perhaps in Scripture, and it's in the book of Philippians. Oh, I put it up there, so I'll just read it from there. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Boy, that's self-denial, isn't it? Have this in mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here we find our great model of deny yourself. Second imperative in this particular passage is to take up your cross. Let me, before I tell you what, what we're going to talk about, let me first describe what it is not. You will note that this idea of taking up your cross is, in our text, this is active. It is not passive. What I mean by that is too often it has been mis misapplied as, well, I have an incurable illness or a a unruly child or a difficult station in life or whatever, and that's just my cross to bear. 
Jesus is not talking passively about the, the trials of life that are common to every single person. He is talking to his disciples and he is not saying that you just passively endure difficult times. No, he's saying, I want you to pick up your cross. This is an active thing. This is something you do. It's not something you endure. So let's kind of get a cultural understanding of the cross. And certainly we know that the cross was probably perhaps one of the cruelest forms of execution there was. And generally a person would um, bear the cross beam if they were uh, to be executed by crucifixion. They would bear the cross beam through the city square to the place of execution. And it was a very public thing. But I'd like to take that just one step further. And cross-bearing was perhaps the greatest admission of one's allegiance to a greater authority. You see, cross-bearing was an admission of rebelling against a higher authority and hence bearing the judgment of that higher authority. It was full and complete submission to the authority of the state. It is saying that the state has utter authority over me to the extent that the state has the authority to take my life in any way they so desire. I am submitting ultimately to the state that says that I have committed a crime against it and now I am subservient to its judgments. It was complete utter submission to a greater authority. So you can see now when we get to this idea of take up your cross, we see in the Christian form it is not authority, it is not complete uh, submission to the authority of the state, but rather it is full and complete submission to the authority of our Lord and God Jesus, who was innocent for shame and rejection, so too the ones united with him. Cross-bearing displays that our independent life has come to an end. And you will note this about cross-bearing, at least in this text. Take up your cross daily. Daily we die to ourselves. Daily we submit to the authority of, uh, of one greater than us. Daily we say, I am not an independent free agent, but you, O oh God, are Lord and Master, and I submit my life and my will and my everything to your will. I'll bear whatever you give me. And I do this daily. If anyone would come after me, if anyone, imperative one, deny yourself. Imperative two, Take up your cross. And imperative number three, follow me. Sometimes we can easily glorify this idea of, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. I just want to remind you of the path of Jesus that he told us in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's the path he's going. And he's saying, I want you to follow me. I'm going to Calvary and I want you to follow after me. And by the way, it is a continual action. And the only way 
One goes where Jesus goes is to entrust himself to God's care and submit himself to him. So Jesus says, fine, you want to follow me. By the way, Jesus' command is follow me. It is not ask me into your heart. It's follow me. Go where I go. Do what I do. And when I go to the cross, you go to the cross. By the way, when I'm resurrected in glory, so you are resurrected in glory. I am an heir of everything that God has. So you are heirs of all that God has. All that is Christ. We are enjoined in union with him. But the path of glory runs through Calvary. And the only way to go where Jesus goes, we must entrust ourselves to God's care, just as Jesus did. Father, if there be another way, let this cup pass. And into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. He completely and entirely entrusted himself to the care of his heavenly Father. Whatever it is you want, Lord, that's what I'm doing. So if you want to be a disciple, and this church is focused on being disciples and making disciples, this is a good reminder for us. I I am not preaching this as one who has mastered these things. Believe me, I'm coming before you needing reminders daily of such things. And then Jesus enters into what we might call uh, the disciples' paradox. And that is this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Which is so paradoxical because we, we by nature, are, are people who... Um, we are driven by self-preservation. We will always seek to protect ourselves. I remember, so we're, we're on our backpacking trip, I don't know, a month ago, and... Uh, so we're coming down North Peak in the Matazels, and uh, man, it's steep. There's a couple really steep sections. Really narrow, slick and loose. Let me tell you, self-preservation kicks in. I got a big old heavy backpack on, a little lighter because I ate all the food. It's the last day. But when there's a 500-foot abyss to my right and loose scree and steep and narrow trails. Let me tell you, self-preservation begins to dominate your thoughts. We are self-preserving creatures. But when it comes to the gospel, I want you to lose your life. And by losing your life, you will save it. And if you seek to save your life, which is so natural, you will lose it. A couple weeks ago, our brothers and sisters in Egypt were slaughtered before the hands of terrorists. That happens all the time. I'm not saying that to diminish its its impact. I'm saying uh, I'm just bringing this, this particular passage up or this particular incident up. From my understanding, they had opportunities to deny and turn away from their faith. They saved their lives that day because they they would not renounce 
their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And on that day, their bodies lay no longer functioning, but they saved their lives. Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servants. Not all of losing our lives for the sake of Christ involves physical death. But you will note here that Jesus says, you who lose my life for my sake. Notice it's for my sake. Because self-sacrifice in many areas of life are are to be applauded. But Jesus is not talking about any self-sacrifice. He's talking about self-sacrifice for his sake. And it is, as I said, not limited to dying physically for the gospel. But it is laying our lives down for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will note this idea assumes animosity towards the follower, that there is some sort of animosity towards the believer, which is difficult for you and I in many ways to relate to because we have been mostly immune to animosity. Being a Christian um, has brought no cost. But I believe that's changing. I want you to watch a video where Albert Moeller, I think, um, deals with this very, very well. There used to be some social capital by being part of a Bible-believing church. Today, I believe it is easier to claim same-sex attraction than it is to say, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mushy middle is getting squeezed out. By the way, 
Dr. Moeller will be speaking this weekend down in Phoenix. If you are interested, let me know. He'll be uh, at a conference down there this coming weekend. So Jesus says, but anyone who wants to uh, save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then he goes on to this. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And now he's coming into this rationale of of why he's, he's talked about these very, very heavy and difficult things. And now he's given the rationale. This is why it's important. This is the value of what I'm saying. And it is a call to reassess value. Simone and I, this last week, we went to um, our investment person, um, just trying to talk. Are we well invested? Are things in the right place? It was a time of reassessing the value of what we have. Is this where things need to be? And if not, let's shuffle things around. We're preparing for something in the future. And so to do that, we might need to assess the value of what we're doing now. And if it's good, let's stay the course. If it's not, let's reprioritize things because we have a future projection. And Jesus is now calling us to reassess the value. Are you invested where you ought to be invested? What will it profit you if you gain everything? What is the value of a soul? What is the value of your soul? And if you lose it, is it worth all of the things that you gained? Probably the best example in Scripture is that rich man who built his barns And one day, the Lord said, you fool. Oh, he gained the whole world. And he forfeited his very soul. He needed to go to an investment banker who would say, a spiritual one, who would say, man, you got things all twisted. You got things all upside down. You are not invested wisely. You need to reassess your positions. Because on the day that your soul is required of you, what are you going to stand upon? What will you do when you stand before the Lord of glory and all of your good works and all of your intelligence and all of your achievements and all of your popularity means nothing? What will you do? What will it profit a man? Let me ask you this question. What if you gained everything you wanted? What if you got all the things you wanted? What if you got that you achieve the pinnacle of your professional career? What if you achieve the, the adoration and the, and the fan base or the, the uh, approval of all you would want to, all that you desire to approve you? What if you were popular and loved and well compensated? What if you got that? At what cost? Because Jesus then tells us to begin to take on a eternal perspective. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus now tells us, I'm asking you to take a long view on your investments, if you will. I want you to take an eternal perspective on your investments. And this idea of being ashamed, let's first of all describe 
what being ashamed is not. I think we I had a couple little visuals. Yep, so first of all, sorry, you probably can't see that, where Jesus is sitting with his laptop that says, well, it's time to see who all shared that one post so I know who to bless. All right, being ashamed, uh, we can put up the, the next one. So I bet you won't share this because you're embarrassed to have Jesus on your wall. And then they quote this verse. Let me tell you, being ashamed of Jesus is not posting something on your Facebook wall or your Instagram or whatever. That is not what it means to be ashamed of Jesus. So don't post those things. I don't think anybody here does. But if you're tempted, don't. And if you have, take it down. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and I know I probably say this every time I flip to some Scripture, is in Hebrews 11:16, And you know Hebrews 11 is about the, the faithful of the Lord, the Lord who, you know, and these people by faith did this, and these people by faith did that, and it talks about all of these wonderful, wonderful acts. And I love, love 16, the, the last part especially. But as is... They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Here it is. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Wow. We all hope that one day the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I sometimes think I would love to hear, I was not ashamed of you. To stand before the Lord and hear him say, yep, not ashamed at all. The world was not worthy of you. Another passage in that same chapter in Hebrews. Wow. I'm not ashamed of you. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for the just will live by faith. Second Timothy 1 Timothy 1.8 we see this, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, have mercy upon us, for too often times we have been ashamed. And then back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Can't find Hebrews. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The Lord sanctifies us, and therefore he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. And then he will come in glory. All of this is set in contrast with the suffering and rejection, etc., His glory is in the end. However, the path to that glory is through the cross. And we are united with him. Our path is the same. So ultimately, this rather um, heavy passage of text is one that is ultimately positive. That joy comes and satisfaction comes not through self-achievement or self-esteem, but by denying ourselves taking up our cross and following after Him. That is where our satisfaction, fullness, joy, blessing 
will arise. I know it's countercultural. It's countercultural in the church. We too often hear, oh, it's all about you being happy and you getting the job you want and you being, I hope you get the job you want. I hope your marriage is perfect and your kids are wonderful. I pray for all of those things. I don't desire anybody to struggle. We need to be people who lay down our lives for one another. That's not easy for me. I, I like my stuff. I, like I said, I, I got my routine and I like it. Don't mess with it. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is a very challenging passage text. I'll probably unpack it a little bit more next week. Some people think that either Jesus was wrong because the kingdom had not come. Um, If Jesus was mistaken, we reject that view. I don't think Jesus has ever been mistaken. No, I don't think that. Uh, Let me rephrase that. Jesus has never been mistaken. And some people there did see, there is some debate as to what is the, the kingdom of God. Well, some would say that it is the resurrected Christ. And some, did not, some who were standing there, like Judas, did not see it, so some saw it. Others would say, um, perhaps it's the, the transfiguration. And I think that's a pretty, good, um, a pretty good understanding because all of the texts, every text that um, all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who record this, all have the transfiguration immediately following this statement. Some standing here today will see the glory of God, or the glory of the kingdom of God. And some did. And they saw Jesus unveiled. It's awesome. So we'll talk about transfiguration next week. But I think that's probably the, the, the better understanding of it, though it's not a hill I'm going to die on, but we'll talk about that next week. So Jesus is saying, folks, if you want to live, you got to die. So I'll conclude with this. It is our desire that we would be disciples. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you uh, fishers of men. But here's the thing, the path of all disciples, all disciples. If you're a follower of Christ today, this is to you. This is to me. The path of all disciples runs through Calvary. That's just where it goes. And Jesus said, follow me. Are we going to follow him? I'm like going, huh? Can I entrust myself to a holy, benevolent God who saved me by his grace? Can I? Even if it runs through Calvary, can I trust him there? It begins with forgiveness that we must trust that God, our Savior, will have mercy upon the penitent sinner, the one who comes before him and says, have mercy upon me. I got nothing. As I said at the very beginning, I got nothing. And it begins there at Calvary where Christ's blood was shed for our sins. That's where it begins. And I will entrust him. And I will believe you. And I will give my life. Here I am. I will trust you to do with me as you see fit. 
So it begins with the forgiveness of sins. And it continues as we take up our cross daily through obedience to carry on the work that Christ has commissioned us to do. But ultimately it ends with resurrection. Remember what happens to Christ happens to us. What happened to Christ? He was raised from the dead in power and in glory and is seated with the Heavenly Father. Let me assure you today that He is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. The first fruits means there's going to be some after Him. It is guaranteed on the merit of the very Word of God who cannot lie, not just does not lie, cannot lie because it is against His very nature. It begins with forgiveness. It continues as we live off this self-sacrificial life and it concludes with, I was not ashamed to be called your God. Welcome. Well done. Well done. That world of glitter and the lust of the eyes and the lust of flesh and the pride of life, that was not worthy of you. Welcome into my kingdom. That's worthy of you. This is the life of the disciple. By the way, the value of this life is immeasurable. There is nothing you can give for it. There is nothing that you have that is not worth what Christ is offering. Nothing that you have, nothing that I have, is worth the value of the kingdom of heaven. So, let's spend just a couple moments. Let's reflect in silence upon what God has blessed us with and given us. Reflect on this message. If you need to get right with God, this would be a good time to do so. If after the final song and blessing you need to speak with somebody, either you would like to repent of your sins and call upon Christ for the first time, um, I would love to talk with you about that. There are many here who would do the same. Or if you just need prayer for something else, come and speak with me. And uh, let's make a commitment to be followers of Christ. Let's spend a few moments in quiet reflection. Having read God's Word, having heard Scripture, having prayed, having sung together, um, and, and having given praise to Him, let's stand for one final song and give praise to our great God and Savior.